Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 258 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Dr. Daya Grant. Daya is a yoga teacher. She has a master's in kinesiology and sports psychology, and she has a PhD in neuroscience. These days, Daya has a private practice where she combines those three disciplines as a mental performance coach for primarily college professional and elite athletes. She works with athletes in a wide range of sports like baseball, gymnastics, volleyball, ice skating, triathlon, CrossFit, and her whole mission is to use all of the tools that she learned from yoga and sports psychology and neuroscience and combine them to empower athletes to perform at their best. So I just thought it would be really incredible to talk to her, and she agreed to come on the podcast. We talk about her work now and how she got into it and how she came to combine these three seemingly different disciplines. And we also talk about, I was really curious to know from her perspective as both a yogi and a neuroscientist, where the crossover is. In other words, the yogis who came up with all of the tools and techniques that we use today, I'm thinking a lot of mindfulness techniques and pranayama, even the eight limbs when you think about it. These are tools that are now in many senses being quote unquote studied in Western labs, right? They used to just be studied in the, in the lab of our bodies, but now they are being studied in all sorts of ways. So I wanted to know what she sees as a neuroscientist is the crossover between the study of the brain as we know it in modern life and what the yogis knew from thousands of years ago. So that's what we talk about as well. I know you will enjoy this interview with her, but before we get to the interview, I just wanted to remind you that I am going to rerun my content blueprint course soon in the next coming months. I am updating it. I'm revising it. There's a few things I want to do a little bit differently, but if you'd like to know when the course goes on sale, please go join my waitlist at jasonyoga.com slash content blueprint. And also Jason is just wrapping up module one of his 500 hour teacher training. If you did module one last year and you're interested in module two or module three online, those are still available and open for registration. And you can find out more about that by going to jasonyoga.com slash 500 hour. And then lastly, if you want to keep up to date on all of the things that we are doing, all of our offerings, all the stuff we're doing on YouTube, which has been a lot of fun and the podcast, please go join our newsletter at jasonyoga.com slash newsletter. So lots of things to offer you this week. If you're ever curious, just go to our website, jasonyoga.com, and, and you can find out all the good stuff. Okay, enjoy the interview with Dr. Daya Grant. Well, hi there, Daya. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thanks for joining me. What an honor to be here. I'm thrilled for this conversation. Me too. Me too. I'm so excited. This might be have, to, have to be like a several part conversation because I feel like there's so much we can talk about. I always like to start by asking people, you know, what their connection is, what their personal connection is to yoga and, and what role it's played in their life. I actually came to yoga through meditation first and it was as a kid. So I was really lucky to be born into a family that really emphasized and practiced meditation. 
My parents come from two very different backgrounds. My dad's black, grew up in Harlem, and my mom is Indian, grew up in India, England, and then California. And they were looking for a place to get married that honored my dad's family history. His dad was atheist. His mom was Christian. My mom's Punjabi Sikh. And they're like, okay, how do we do this? How do we get married in a place that honors all of that? And they found a spiritual path that just really resonated with them. It tapped into my dad's scientific side and it really was a way to bring yoga to the Western world. And the emphasis was meditation. So as a kid, I was meditating every night with my parents, just a couple minutes with my brother and parents. And, you know, it was probably something that I took for granted. I sort of assumed everyone had a meditation practice with their family. And, and then I, I started practicing the asana piece much later. It wasn't until college. And I was a dancer, ballet and modern dancer growing up. And my mom said, you should really try yoga. It'll help. Mm-hmm. And at that time it was really just flexibility. You know, that's why so many people first start. Mm-hmm. And I was a teenage girl and I said, no, I don't need to do that. And then went off to college and that first class hooked me as it, as it does so many of us. And I just felt like I could take over the world and practice, decided in 2007 to do my first teacher training. And I had no intention of teaching. I simply wanted to deepen my own practice. But as often is the case, I realized that this is a gift that needs to be shared. And I then began teaching and now I incorporate it into my practice. And it's, it's really the cornerstone of everything I do personally and professionally. That's amazing. So you have a neuroscience degree. So when you did your teacher training, where, where were you in your, in your more traditional education at that point? Like when did those two merge? Yes. So I had, I started my teacher training January, 2007. And then I actually, after college decided I wanted to do a master's in sports psychology, kinesiology. So that fall, this was a a year long teacher training program. Um, I started my kinesiology sports psychology master's program. So that was, that was the beginning of it. That was starting to work with athletes towards the end of that. I realized, okay, I miss neuroscience. I was a neuro major in college. I like getting, getting deep beneath the surface. I need to go study neuroscience more. So Mm -hmm. then I've completed my teacher training, finished my master's, and then went to do my PhD in neuroscience. Was there, uh, this is like a total aside, but was there ever a point where your parents were like, enough school? Because <laughs> you were like, I mean, that's a lot of years under your belt. It was a lot of years, but my parents had the same problem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So my dad, my dad actually did a PhD. He did a master's, a PhD, and then an MD. So I actually, oh. I actually did less school. Wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and my mom got her master's in nursing. And you know, they, they've always been so supportive and they just said, you keep going. Like at some point, this is all going to make sense and it's all going to come together. And from an outsider's perspective, it was, okay, hold on. You're doing yoga and neuroscience and sports psychology. I mean, what, what is this? And I said, I don't know, but my dad said, it's going to make sense one day. And I'm just going to trust that. Uh huh. Uh huh. So you grew up a dancer I saw that you almost went to Juilliard, which is so interesting. 
And then you studied neuroscience. Where does the like where does the interest in sports piece come in that you did mm. the math that masters? Yes. Program? So in my undergrad, I, as a neuro major, our thesis was to write a grant proposal. So we didn't actually have to carry out the research, but we had to write a proposal about a question that we were excited about. So I was trying to think, okay, what, what's something I can do, maybe ballet or dance related, but has to do with the brain. And my brother, who's younger than me, was playing basketball. We were a big basketball family. And I said, okay, well, this there's something, there's something here. Like we can talk about maybe what happens before you play a game, what's going on in their mind. Is there anxiety? Can we measure that? Sure. We can use cortisol to measure stress acutely. Mm -hmm. So that could be a cool idea. So that was sort of what got it started was writing this proposal, having this question. And then I, I found the field of sports psychology and I realized, wow, okay, well, I love sport. I mean, I grew up as an athlete and I just, I know how much of the mind is involved with athletic performance. So I'm going to go study that. Wow. <laughs> so that's, yeah. that's really what led me to, it was just asking questions and figuring out where I need to go to start answering some of those questions. Mm -hmm. You have the ultimate educational background that combines body and mind. It's, we always talk about, you know, that pathway and connection, but like you've studied that in so many different, in so many different facets. So, you know, when I reached out to you, I said, I'm just so interested in learning from you where you started to see connections between what has been studied so far in Western science or scientifically and the crossover between that and, and the tools that we have been using in yoga for, you know, millennia. So I wanted to just, yeah, put that question out there to you. What are some things that you've been fascinated to see have, have been corroborated that you use all the time in your practice? Yes. Well, it's, it's so, I like how you put scientifically in quotes, because obviously <laughs> the yogis back in the day, thousands and thousands of years ago, were the scientists of their right. time, right? They were the ones asking questions and doing these experiments and trying to see like, how do we, how do we get here? How do we know ourselves more? But yes, now we have the scientific method and we have all of these tools at our disposal. And with really the blossoming of neuroscience in the past few decades, we're able to quite literally peek inside the brain. I think just for context, we can appreciate that the Western scientific method approach to yoga is so new. I mean, the 50s and 60s were probably when the first studies on meditation were starting to come out and those were physiologically based. And then by the 70s, we were already getting a lot more information, but that was not that long ago. I mean, we're mm -hmm. talking half a century. And, and so now the amount, it is so hard to keep up with the amount of data that's coming out. I think from a personal standpoint, when I just started my PhD at UCLA, I was connected with a researcher who was doing neuroimaging work. And she was looking at the brains of doing MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, to look at the brains of 
people who had been meditating for a long time and comparing them to non-meditators. And she, she and I connected and she asked, would you like to be a part of the study? You've been meditating your whole life. Do you want to do this? And so I went through the whole rigmarole going in the MRI scanner. My goodness, do you have to practice pranayama in there? Oh <laughs> that yeah, is, that's it right. Is, it is a challenging for anyone. Loud and just so disruptive, but it was a really cool study. And she showed me, you know, what they're able to look at and also what the limitations are. And that started getting me interested in some of this. And while my focus in school was concussions and neurodegenerative disease, I always had a little bit of my focus on what was happening in the field with the yoga and meditation research. Now we've gained a lot of information and we know the psychological and physiological benefits of yoga, right? Like we know it improves your sleep, it, it benefits your emotional well-being, reduces stress, decreases your heart rate, all of that. But I'm so curious about what's happening at the level of the neurons. Like when we say that our brains can change and neuroplasticity is a phenomenon that occurs and it doesn't just stop when we hit 25, it keeps going. Right. What does that look like? And how does yoga and meditation affect that? And the studies are really phenomenal. And I'm so excited to hear that. It's so, it's <laughs> so, so awesome. hopeful, right? Oh, it's, it's so, so hopeful. hopeful. And there's so much more to learn. I think as is the case, when you're starting to look in one area, there are a lot of people using a lot of different methods. And because yoga and meditation is so vast, there's not a lot of replicating the same studies yet. And, but that's okay. Right now, we're just kind of throwing everything out there and exploring as much as we can. We're appreciating the breadth of this. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, I'm excited to share what some of these, these studies are showing. And okay. so I think we can break it down. Should we just dive into this? Yes. Let's okay. dive into it. <laughs> I'm excited. Um, so one way I like to think about it is breaking it down into structural findings and functional findings. So structurally is how is the brain actually changing? Like how is the, the gray matter, the white matter changing after yoga or meditation? Mm -hmm. This is usually done with MRI. And again, there are a wide range of styles that have been studied. So Kundalini, Iyengar, um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR plus asana practice, meditation only. I mean, it really runs the gamut, but we can essentially break it down into experienced yogis and non-yogis. And okay, so there's a couple really, really cool findings. The first one is that there's an increase in gray matter and gray matter is like the cell bodies. So the neurons, the body of those neurons, that's where they live in the gray matter. The axons that come out of those neurons compose the white matter. But the, and the white matter is really how they communicate with each other. But the gray matter is where a lot of the activity happens. So in one area called the insula, gray matter has shown to be greater. It increases with the yogis versus the non-yogis. Okay. So why does that matter? The insula is, is 
related to interoceptive body awareness. So that's huge. Yogis, perhaps unsurprisingly, are more sensitive to physiological changes in their body. Mm. And that really matters because that is also related to our ability to deal with stress. So if we're sensing, "Mm, my heart rate's increasing here, my palms are getting a little sweatier. If we're sensing those physiological changes, we can modify them. One of the things I do with my athletes is really crude, basic biofeedback. So what does that look like? We're not, we're not hooking them up, doing anything fancy. I'm just simply having them take their pulse and then take some deep breaths and then feel how their pulse slows down. That body awareness is huge. And it may be because our insula is thicker. There's Mm -hmm. more there. Mm -hmm. Also, another part of that is that that body awareness is associated with pain tolerance. So in yogis, we see not only increased gray matter, but also increased connectivity in the insula. And so there's more connections between different parts of the structure. And um, what's really cool is that yogis seem to use different mental strategies than non-yogis to deal with pain. And that probably has something to do with this insula again. So Mm. Yogis will activate their parasympathetic nervous system, right? We relax, we observe the pain, we almost detach slightly, but accept it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Non yogis have decreased connectivity, they have decreased volume in the insula, they'll ignore the pain or they'll try to distract themselves. So, this may be the neural mechanism underlying those differences. Wow. It's There's really interesting. All- Oh, sorry, sorry. I just was going to say, I mean, this is hopeful to me because um, for kids who are identified as having um, sensory processing disorder, um, I happen to know a lot about that. One of the things they really struggle with is interoception. And so it can lead, it could be like on the extreme end of that, you, it could be challenges with extreme, extreme challenges with potty training, right? Yes. You can't sense when it's time to go to the bathroom. On the less, so it could be anything from that level, which can be really debilitating for people in their life as they're growing up, to the level of like what we have noticed with our daughter over the years is, and it's gotten so much better, which is perhaps like mindfulness practice that we do with her, but is also perhaps grow, you know, development, right? Her development just might be a little delayed, but not knowing when she's hungry. Right. Mm-hmm. So often kids will just, I'm hungry. I need a snack. Does, does, she, she can't always tell when she's hungry. Mm-hmm. So, so what happens is for a child, right? If they go too f- far past their hunger, they have a meltdown. They, right. Everything shuts down. They can't right. function. Right. So all, any of these things with interoception can really affect your whole quality of life. Because before we knew that she couldn't perceive that she was hungry, we just thought she was really prone to meltdowns. Right. And you respond to a person a certain way when you think they're really prone to meltdowns. But once we started to learn like, oh, honey, you're hungry. Trust us. Please trust us. Please trust us. And then, okay, once she started to eat, she could feel the hunger. Mm. Once she was finished eating, she could reflect and say, oh yeah, I was really hangry. Yes. It's like this whole process once you know that. So that that's just, that's amazing because that could really, for young people, knowing that these practices would help could really change so much in their life as they develop. 
Yes, that's the power of all of this. I mean, it's not, it's, we're not doing this just to find changes in brains and what structures gain volume. I mean, it's what are the applications here? And at what age do we start really paying attention to our mind, body, spirit practices? Yeah. And, um, and as we start to tease apart, you know, specifically, what styles of yoga or which pranayama practices mm -hmm. are going to have the most benefit, then we can tailor things much better. So the, the therapeutic potential is tremendous. And I also find it really empowering. I think as I was getting my PhD, I, I loved teaching kids about the brain and they're so fascinated by it. And yeah, they I are. can see, yes, your daughter being so thrilled to understand what's happening, like yeah. what actually is happening in the brain and how she can affect change there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty funny too. Um, the teacher sent home, we, we have to do these benchmarks and, and the teacher sent something home that said, because she has ADHD. And so we teach her about dopamine and we teach her about, you know, just the way her brain is wired. And we talk about it all the time. And she knows now that she can focus for a certain amount of time on a non-preferred task. Mm -hmm. And then her brain is just like, I'm done. Yes. And so the teacher said that at a certain point, Sophia will often say, my brain's not working anymore. <laughs> and I was really excited about that. I don't think the teacher was that excited about that, but I was like, no, this is actually a really good thing. She's not trying to be smart. She's not trying to be sassy. She's yeah. genuinely knowing, and she's not taking it like, oh, I just can't do this, or I'm terrible. It's like, eh, my brain's glitching. She'll exactly. My brain's glitching. It's just not, this is, it's offline. I need to go yeah. move around. I need to go do something else. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my goodness. More of us need to have that awareness because yeah. we, how often do we fight through something and we, or we hit a wall and we just keep going and keep trying. And our brain is really like, no, I need yeah. to up. And we, we spend so much time talking about focus and how to hone focus and how to be productive and how to be efficient. And, but really our brain actually needs a lot of time to unfocus. That's, that's been proven. So we have to have that balance. And that's, what's so beautiful about this yoga practice is that it does offer that balance. It's the effort and the surrender. It's both. It's all of it. Ah, yeah. Okay. Well, I want to know more about the unfocusing, but I also don't want to interrupt you if you were going to share like your next finding. So we can circle back to that or we could talk yes. about. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's, okay. Let's circle back. There's a couple other things. So, and these will be kind of quick, but hippocampus, that's the seahorse shaped structure in our brain that's related to learning and memory that increases in volume in the yogis versus the non-yogis. What about areas that decrease gray matter? So one is the amygdala. And the amygdala is really involved with our emotions, our fears, our all that stuff. It is a deep-seated structure. And gray matter is decreased there with the yogis. So that, again, relates to stress. We have a better relationship with stress. We perceive stress differently. So those are just some of the structural findings, but the functional findings are also really exciting. And this is, you know, we're looking at activity in certain regions of the brain. 
So one of the things we see is that there's increased blood flow and activation in the prefrontal cortex. And this is important because the prefrontal cortex is involved with executive control. This is things like impulse control, planning, controlling our emotions, working memory, mental flexibility, which is critical in just Mm -hmm. living in this world. (laughs) There's more blood flow going there. When, when you have practiced yoga for an extended period of time. There's also, and this is really, this is probably the area that I'm most excited about right now. It's the default mode network. So the DMN, because neuroscientists love to use acronyms for everything. <laughs> the DMN is really cool. So for a long time, we thought that when your brain is active completing a task, doing a task, working on something, that's when it's active. And when it's not, when you're just resting, it's quiet. Well, it turns out that's not the case. When we're resting and supposedly not doing anything, the default mode network activates. It's what's kind of the background noise. That's cool. But what we've learned is that when the DMN is overactive, that's associated with rumination and depressive Mm. symptoms. So we don't want an overactivation in the DMN. When we're focused on a task and everything's good, that's great. But then when we stop, we don't want to slip into ruminating all the time. Mm-hmm. So what do, we, what do we see with this work? Well, we see increased connectivity within the DMN and reduced activation. So by doing something like practicing yoga, like practicing meditation, we are quieting the default mode network. And that can have profound, profound implications for anyone dealing with depression, um, but also any of us, any of us that tend to slip into that place of, okay, mine's going, mine's going, mine's going. That work is really exciting. And really the, the default mode network is pretty new in the neuroscience space, like last 10, 15 years or so. We had also talked about bef- before we actually connected this way, but alternate nostril breathing. And that's just one of the many types of breathing practices that have been studied. I would say that alternate nostril breathing is probably the most well-studied of all the breathing techniques, and it really benefits cognition. So specifically verbal and spatial memory and focused attention. So it seems that there are probably a different practices to incorporate based on what we're needing more of. Mm. And um, it's going to be really cool to see where all of this goes in the next five, 10. I can't even imagine where this will be 20 years from now. Um, It's, it's just starting. I mean, there are studies looking at brain waves and what does that mean? Why does that matter? It's, it's endless and it's really thrilling. Can you say a little bit more? I'm so curious. I I always think of, like, just from a personal experiential point of view, alternate nostril nostril breathing is um, just very settling for me, like very grounding. I I I didn't know about those other benefits. Can you talk a little bit more about what what you mean by those benefits? The you said verbal. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, and spatial memory. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So. There are so many different types of memory. 
right? Verbal memory is being able to hold words in our mind. So if you hear, as you're listening to me speak, you need to be able to hold on to, and this is related to to working memory as well. You need to be able to hold on to what I said at the beginning of this sentence to understand it by the end of the sentence, right? Spatial memory is knowing where we are in space and knowing where to move. And I mean, when we think about Yo, the yoga, the yoga, the asana practice. We need to know if we've visited Warrior Two over and over again. Our spatial memory allows us to revisit it, to be mm. there again, to get into that position. And then on a more macro scale, it's where are we just in in the world? How do I get from here to my son's school? I have to have some memory of how that works, and that's. That's where spatial memory is involved. And also back to focus, that focused attention. So these are all really big cognitive benefits. But to, to your point of feeling grounded, I've heard people say, you know, we practice alternate nostril breathing to sort of balance the left and right hemisphere of the brain. I think what was really meant by that and what the science supports is that One nostril, and at this moment, I don't remember which one, but one is more associated with the parasympathetic nervous system. The other is more associated with the sympathetic nervous system. So by alternating the breath, we are balancing those two very important parts of our nervous system. Mm -hmm. We're making sure that one's not out of whack and really weighing down the other one and, and just showing up more. So that balance is absolutely what's going to contribute to you feeling grounded and settled. And probably the cognitive stuff is benefiting that as well. So when we're, I mean, let's just take the word feeling scattered. When we feel scattered, we're in our heads. We feel like there are all these thoughts going around and we are certainly not grounded. The opposite of that is, okay, our feet are firmly rooted. We're connected to the earth. Our mind's quieter. We probably have tapped into our ability to pay attention to one thing at a time. That's what that this what that's this can do. That makes sense. I am just that's really amazing. I never extrapolated that level of benefit for for a breathing practice. Yeah, so that's that's really interesting. Yes. Yeah. So you spend your days these days as a mental performance coach and consultant for mostly for athletes, right? Um, So how do you work with people and how do you use, how, well, actually, how do you convince athletes that yoga (laughs) is helpful for them and how do you tailor it to them? Yes. It's really cool how this has evolved during my practice while having my private practice, it, you know, it wasn't something that I talked so directly about early on in my career. And that's probably because 10, 12 years ago, it wasn't mainstream. Like we weren't talking about yoga the way we are talking about it now. Huge celebrity athletes weren't endorsing meditation apps like they are now. Mm -hmm. Um, We're in a different space. And so it's made it a lot easier to talk about this thing that I've always been so passionate about and fully believe in. So, well, first of all, I've come to the realization myself that 
there is such beautiful synergy between yoga and athletic performance and specifically yoga philosophy. I think, you know, when we're, when we talk about yoga, why do we do yoga? It's to connect to ourself, right? Our capital S self to cut through the stories, the limiting beliefs, the layers. We want to gain access to that, which is to our light, to our bliss. Why do athletes pursue their sport? for all of the above. They want to connect to themselves. They want to cut through the stuff. They want to connect to something deeper, something more. Mm. So to me, it makes so much sense to merge the two. It's, they're both practices of unifying the body, mind, and spirit to really realize who you are. It's, mm. it's about self-realization for both of them. Now, I don't go into working with an athlete talking like that at the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I really want to meet them where they are. And, and that's what we learn as yoga teachers is we have to meet our students where they are. It's the same with sports psychology, sport perf- mental performance consulting. Yes, many athletes first are introduced to yoga through the third limb, through asana, because it's going to help prevent injuries, because it's going to help them gain that body awareness. But actually, the majority of athletes are already doing the fourth limb. They're practicing pranayama. They are paying attention to their breath. So for me, that's the, that's the easiest access point. And we start really simply talking about that. We, we start with a single deep breath, and that's incorporated into their pre-movement routine. So let's take a baseball player. I'll have, I'll have them show me what they do before they step up to the plate. What do they go through? Like I'm watching them. I'm asking them what they're saying to themselves. They may hold the bat, look at it, take a quick little breath and then keep going. But often they don't. And so we, we talk a little bit about the science. Like what does taking a deep breath do? It lowers your cortisol acutely it helps you focus your attention. It relaxes your body. If you're really tense at the plate, you are not going to have as much control over that ball. You need to allow the swing to happen. You have to allow that contact between the bat and the ball. So we work on that single deep breath and that's their, that's their real introduction to this. Um, so even, so even one single deep breath can have a profound effect on your cortisol. It can have an effect. An effect. Okay. Um, yes, I yes. only ask because I do that again. Like I'm, this is pretty interesting because I'm relating this all to how we could work with kids. Cause I often tell my daughter, like, just take one breath. And I, yeah. because it's hard, kids resist things like this and it seems so basic to them too. And right. I'm learning how to explain the science to her. So, so it's just, I'm just checking in with, you know, that that does seem to be an effective starting place. Yeah. And that may be, I mean, I think for a lot of kids, they might not be able to relate to cortisol and like what that really means, but it is quieting the mind. One deep breath. If you're focusing on that deep breath, you're quieting all the thoughts, like all the little, the chatter in sport. We talk about them as, as ants. There are these automatic negative thoughts that just kind of crawl all over our minds. A single deep breath quiets that. It slows your heart rate immediately. These are all things that are dropping you into your body so that you can think clearer, so that you can move forward from a a centered place and then perform at the level that you're capable of performing at. Hmm. So 
so yes, the breath, and then we, we get a little bit more complex with the breathing. So I do a lot of four, seven, eight breathing with athletes just to really reduce their pre-competition anxiety, alternate nostril breathing as well. And, and then it gets exciting because then I'm starting to incorporate the other limbs of yoga without them necessarily knowing it. And maybe we'll get to the point where we talk about it and I use some of these Sanskrit terms, but maybe we don't, but I'm still conveying this to them. So, so dharana, we're talking about focal points. We're talking about mantra and affirmations. These are anchors for them to use. And they use the athletes use this all the time, even the yamas and the niyamas. So, okay, how do we incorporate asteya on a deeper level into athletic performance? Well, we talk about how are you, how are you stealing energy from yourself? How do you steal it from other people? Let's pay attention to what's happening there. Um, one of the big things I do is, is help athletes develop their mission statement. And I realized, oh my gosh, this is aligned with Satya. This is truthfulness. This is having integrity in what you do, knowing your truth, knowing who you are, knowing what your values are, and getting really crystal clear on that. How cool. And it, yeah. just, it just keeps going. And over time, I help them develop a deeper meditation practice because ultimately, that's the one thing that I firmly believe is going to carry them through their lives. At some point, they're going to stop playing their sport. And we've seen time and time again, athletes slip into deep depression when they leave because their whole identity has been wrapped up in that. But meditation is this powerful, powerful practice that if they have that as an anchor, I know it'll serve them when they start playing their sport. So it's really important to me that I help them develop that practice and they start to see, oh, okay, this is cool. I mean, I had uh, a quarterback, a college quarterback who you wouldn't necessarily think is going to say, talk to me about meditation. Hmm. And he did. And, and ultimately I recorded a guided meditation for him. And he was so excited one day to come to one of our meetings and he said, okay, I've got stats for you. These were my stats in terms of completed passes, in terms of touchdown passes before I started using the guided meditation. Then I started practicing it every single day. And now here are my stats. And the numbers were obvious. And he's like, Whoa. this stuff works. That's amazing. That's <laughs> amazing. Really, I mean, I don't, not every athlete is so stat focused, but I loved that. And it, this stuff really does work. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, the other thing to think about, it, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about, is when you were saying that so many times, well, you notice the parallel that athletes are also, the process of doing their sport connects them to their true self. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine that when they are unable to do that sport anymore, it's like there's the mental loss of identity. And then there's just that physical processing that they're so accustomed to. And all of those like positive you know, neurochemicals that are produced by doing their sport, that's just taken away from them. Yeah, that must be just so hard. And so yeah, if there's some process for them to then be able to process that and, and maybe produce those chemicals in another way, that's okay on their body. Right. Um, that, that would just be life changing. Exactly, exactly. And that's, um, you know, so, so many of them love the 
more powerful, stronger yoga practices for that reason. It's mm-hmm. okay. I, I know that maybe this is something that I can keep doing and it is activating a lot of those neurochemicals that do make me feel good. And it's challenging. Like I can actually have, I can, you know, we, we obviously yoga is about the process and the practice and the journey, but we also all, we'd be lying if we didn't say we also are all trying to get somewhere with some of these poses. That is not the goal, but it's something, it's something. And that really, I mean, these are go getting athletes that love this idea of working towards something so that the asana practice of it is, is a really big hook for them. Uh Uh-huh. So you do actually, so how do you, do you teach them yoga or do you kind of teach them a sequence and have them take it home? Or do you, you know, have teachers who you recommend? How do you get them into the asana piece? Yes. So that it's, it's on a case by case basis because some athletes will come to me with that first. Also, because I did study concussions, I do have a lot of athletes that come and are dealing with recovering from a concussion. And so we'll start with the asana piece and, you know, use this as a way to reconnect to their body. Like when you have a concussion, there's in a very real way, this severing between the body and the mind. And there's this disconnect that you have to reestablish. So through the practice of yoga, we help them regain some of that. So that's often what happens. And then But then I do have the athletes that come to me for just mental performance from the get-go and it varies. Like for some of them, if we're meeting, I'll just show them a short sequence. I'll show them something that they can do as sort of a warm-up before they start moving their body. And I just, it's, I let them take the lead on that to figure out what's really going to serve them. What do they need? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did, how long have you been in your, doing your own private practice? I've been working with athletes since I finished my master's. So that was 2009, Mm -hmm. but I really launched out on my own in 2018. So that's been, yes, my son was two and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I'm just, I'm going to pour my heart into this private practice, doing this on my own. And here we go. And that's when I was really able to incorporate all of these different aspects of, of, yeah my background. So you had a long ramp of working after your sports psychology degree of working with athletes so that when you started your private practice, you, cause it sounds like you have an incredibly fluid way of working with people, which requires a lot of skill. I'm just yeah. thinking about people who are interested in this possible avenue and just like, yeah, how, how you feel like you can ramp up that skill set because unlike going to school to, you know, be a psychiatrist or where there's like a whole protocol of things. Did you, you know, you, you've had to carve your own path with this. Yes. Yes. It's very different in that way. Um, And that's probably why it took a long time for sports psychology to even have a certification. They, they now do, and I am certified in it, but it was, you know, we're a newer field and there isn't one way to do anything. And my my late mentor really was his own guy. And he started doing this work in the seventies and he just always said like, don't be me, please don't be me. You've got to be you. And Mm. three weeks before he passed away, we had an opportunity to walk together on the bluffs in Palos Verdes. And 
he drew in the dirt circles and each one represented a different part of me. So he drew one for neuroscience. He drew one for sports psychology. He drew one for yoga. And then he drew one for mom. And he said, your work will be at the intersection of all of these. And at the time, I didn't really know how I was going to do that. Like it felt as though I was I was being called over here to talk about neuroscience, or I was being called over here to do yoga or called over here to talk about sports psych. Like it wasn't, and the mom stuff wasn't a part of any of this. (laughs) And it's now I've just allowed it to unfold and I've followed what has lit me up. And so, I mean, I think that there's no textbooks can teach you this stuff. It's getting out there and it's getting the experience and, Part of why I love doing what I do is that I learn so much from the athletes that I work with. I learned that, okay, I thought this approach would, would work with you. I thought this technique would work. And they say, you know, I have a gymnast who we started doing a lot of imagery and I talked to her about the science of it. And she's like, this isn't, I just keep seeing myself falling off the beam or crashing after the vault. Like this isn't working. And I said, okay, let's not do it. And And so then what we started doing is she's drawing stick figures, like frame by frame of what she needs to be doing. And that was just kind of an idea that came to me and that's been working for her. And so she taught me that, like, I, you can't go in with this cookie cutter way of, of doing it. You just allow, you allow yourself to be open to every experience as a learning opportunity and just embrace all of it. And then keep, keep walking. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that's a great teacher in you because yeah, that makes sense to me that some people can visualize things in their mind and some people do better by doing the kinesthetic learning, drawing, and then seeing it visually in front of them. So that's, that's awesome. That's really cool. You have a little boy, right? I do. He's five. He's a lucky little guy. He's going to be exposed to so many cool things. (laughs) And he's doing yoga. He takes yoga and he just, he loves it. And he loves showing us all different poses. And we, you know, I've continued the tradition that my parents started and we meditate with him at night. And sometimes he meditates with us. And sometimes Uh he's like making sounds and crawling all over our bodies. And, um, (laughs) but it's, it's really cool to see, to sort of be the neuroscientist and watch how his brain is forming. I mean, that's what's so awesome about being a parent, right? Is we see, we, it's like we can see those neurons, those synapses forming. And it's, it's amazing. Just remarkable. It really is. Like the things that maybe they struggle with, you know, three months later, you'll see it click for them. And it's like, wow, that development is fascinating. It's really fascinating. Well, you've really inspired me in so many ways, but especially to do a nightly meditation practice with our kid. Um, We've done all these different things, but we haven't done a ritual. And a ritual is such a great idea. And I always think of meditating in the morning because that's what works well for me. But what's who's to say that a nice little nighttime, because most kids have a nighttime routine, Right. But incorporating that one more step just yes. sounds so lovely. Do you do you teach him any particular technique? Do you just sit quietly? Do you sometimes guide him? How do you guys do it? Yeah, it all varies. But first, I do want to acknowledge that I, I'm the same way. I do my meditation practice in the morning. And 
I try sometimes, I'll say 20% of the time, try to do one in the evening and it's rough. Like it's messy. Too. Yeah. I know that that's part of the process and it should mm-hmm. be, <laughs> but right. so I kind of take this three minute meditation in the evening as my meditation practice in the evening. And then maybe I'll journal or I'll do something else. But um, yes, a couple of the techniques. So we will sometimes just sit for a minute and that's it. Sometimes um, I'll guide him to just put, and my husband's in there too. And we'll just put our hands on our belly and just feel the belly move up and down while we breathe. When he was, even now, sometimes he'll like hold a stuffed animal and then watch that move. He really likes the hand meditation. So he just holds up, we all hold up our hand and then we trace each finger. And as you move up to the tip of the finger, you breathe in. And then as you breathe out, as you move down, you breathe out. And so you just go through that uh, five breaths. And then he actually added this part. He puts his hands on his heart and then just feels love. And then we end end it that way. Um, And then sometimes a little plug for some of these apps. I mean, my husband and I love Peloton and they have some really great five minute meditations. And so we'll just put one of those on. um, We have the calm app. Yes. I was going to say calm. It's so good. So good. And it really helps for our kids to hear someone else. I mean, I've noticed that Sometimes he, my son just doesn't want to listen to me guide him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's fun to you know press start on the app and we'll listen to that way. So there's a million different things, but it is a beautiful routine to have. And and sometimes yes, it's very messy, but you stick with it. And I think it's gonna. I know it's gonna serve them when mm. they're out of our homes. Yeah, especially since you grew up with it. That's just amazing. You're the first person I. No, actually, I have one other friend who grew up meditating with his family, um, and he's still an avid meditator. He's been on the podcast, Jamal Yogis. When you were growing up and you were meditating with your family, did it sh- like how did it shift and change as you got into like your preteen years and your teen years? Yes, I don't remember <laughs> as much okay. family meditation. But part of that too was just because of our schedules right. as well. So, you know, I was off at, at class and rehearsals and my brother was playing basketball and my dad worked really long hours and a lot of that was part of it. But, but we still kept, it was still something we talked about a lot. And my parents always brought us back to like, this is your anchor. This is a practice that you always have and you can always go to. And all the stuff that you go through as a teenager, like it was it was so empowering to know that I had this thing that I could go to. And truthfully, I think my brother and I probably took it for granted in a lot of ways because we didn't, I think sometimes when you find meditation as an adult, you really are like, Oh my God, this is amazing. I'm so committed. But when you just, when that's all you ever know, like with everything else in that, in that way, you sometimes take advantage of it. And, and truthfully, I think it was, I really came back to it in college when I started having some, like anxiety stuff. Like I would have acute panic attacks and, mm-hmm. um, and that's when I was like, okay, okay. I need to go back. I have, I know what to do. Right. That's, that's still, that's so great that you, you knew you had that available to you. Yeah. 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 Well, is there anything else I missed or anything you want to add to, to all the, all that we talked about? <laughs> no, I just, I think, you know, sometimes people say, gosh, and you even mentioned this, I wish I had studied neuroscience or I wish I could have done this. And, and I, 
I say there's so much coming out now and there are a lot of scientists that love to communicate this information to non-scientists. So that's a great, I was going to ask you if there's any resources people could look at. Yeah. Don't go to, don't go to primary journal articles. I mean, (laughs) those things are impossible to get through. Right. Um, But yes, I mean, I, I love writing about this stuff and they're, you know, I'd have to put some thought into some other easily accessible resources, but but you yes, have a, a newsletter or a blog? I do. Yes. Okay. I write a, a weekly blog and send it out in my newsletter. And I do just that. I The blog touches on mental skills, yoga philosophy, and neuroscience, and it ties it all it. together for for anyone. And, and really in a, I talk about the science, but it's really approachable and fun and interesting. And I just get to the the essence of what these studies are saying. And then I think it's always important to not just theorize, but to know, okay, how can I put this into practice? How can I start changing some of these habits that I have or like really making it practical because we're all on this path of growth and evolution. That's why we're here. That's why we want to do this. So here are some tools to do it. Yes. It's just, it's been such a thrill to talk about all of these things with you. And I just encourage everyone to follow what lights you up and read about all this research that's coming out and just get so curious about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I'm excited. I started following your, I signed up for your newsletter a few weeks before I reached out to you and it's great and it is so useful. So I will definitely put a link to that for people on on the show notes page and um, we can all, we can all keep learning. It's so exciting. Thank you so much for being here, Daya. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. Go follow Daya on Instagram and go to her website and sign up for her newsletter uh, for weekly neuroscience and yoga inspiration. I will put links to those on our show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 258. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast all of these years. I just want to quickly say how much I love receiving emails from you. They really warm my heart (laughs) and make all of this all worth it. All of the work, all of the trying to dig up the, the most insightful and interesting guests I can find. And I'm just so glad that you appreciate it. If you do find yourself appreciating the podcast, it's always helpful if you go and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, you can leave a rating and review. That helps more people to find the podcast.